we love you. We love you, Jesus. And thank you for saving us. Thank you for rescuing us. Help us. Help us, Jesus. Help me right now. Uh, free us from distractions. We want to hear from you. We want to hear from you this afternoon. Lord, for our president, I ask that you'd give him wisdom for the House of Representatives, for the Senate, for the Supreme Court justices, for our leaders, guide and direct them, Jesus. Help them. For our soldiers, sailors, airmen, and Marines, this Memorial Day weekend, we reflect on their sacrifice. And Lord, I pray that you'd keep them safe. And I pray that many would come to know you because so many of them don't know you. So please save them. And for our enemies, I ask that you would confuse and frustrate their plans, that you would save them, that you would rescue them, Jesus. Lord, we remember those who are in chains as if in chains with them, the persecuted church, Asiya Bibi, Andrew Brunson, and many others whose names we do not know. Help them. Strengthen them. Lord, keep me from error. Help me to say what I'm supposed to say. Nothing more, nothing less. We need you, Jesus. We always do. In your name we pray, amen. We begin part 10 of our study through the book of Joshua right now. Part 10 begins right now. Starting in chapter 8, verse 1, and it says, And the Lord said to Joshua, Do not fear and do not be dismayed. Do not fear and do not be dismayed. That is, don't be discouraged. Now, to understand the significance of Joshua chapter 8, verse 1, just that opening phrase, don't fear, don't be dismayed. It requires us to remember last week's sermon, or at the very least, chapter 7. Chapter 7, the first battle of Ai commenced. Joshua sent a reconnaissance team out. They reconned Ai. They came back. In their report, they said, we can take this city with as little as two to 3,000 men. Joshua said, execute. They go out. They get beaten. And they come back with a dog, like a dog, with its tail between its legs, utterly embarrassed and ashamed. Joshua is shocked. He doesn't really know what to do. Throws himself down before the Lord and says, we could have just stayed on the other side of the Jordan. Because now, every one of the Canaanites are going to hear this. Our embarrassing defeat at the Battle of Ai. And they're going to be like sharks in the water smelling blood. And they're all going to band together and come after us and cut us off and destroy us. Joshua thinks his life is over. When you look at chapter 7, verses 6 to 9, he thinks it's over. He thinks it's over. He's afraid that they're going to die. He's greatly dismayed and discouraged. So the 
That's the significance when it says in chapter 8, verse 1, Joshua, do not fear and do not be dismayed because he's very much discouraged. He's very much afraid that his days are numbered. And of course, as we saw, that the issue was this sin and the rebellion from this man Achan from within the camp. And God was furious with the people. And that's, I think, a reminder for uh, a modern American church that loves to emphasize maybe certain attributes of God, i.e. His love, to remember that God gets angry. He gets angry with His people. He gets angry with us when we sin, when we rebel. He does. We forget that sometimes. Well, He is no longer angry. The guilty party, Achan, was punished And we see in one sense His holiness and His anger and His justice on display in chapter 7. And then here in chapter 8, after He's given this punishment, we see Him like this loving Father embracing Joshua, embracing the people. It really, when I read this, took me back to my childhood when there would be moments when I would rebel against my mother and I would have uh, a spoon or a piece of wood against my behind and I'd be there, just little boy and all, if you can imagine, crying Tears flowing. But then afterwards, there would be my mother hugging me, holding me, loving me, praying for me. God gets angry with His people. God punishes His people. God is not a respecter of persons just because Achan is, quote-unquote, an Israelite. He holds His people accountable. Punishment is given. And now afterwards, you might say, His mercies are new every day. Great is His faithfulness. And so, yes, that's the weight of chapter 8, verse 1. Don't fear. Joshua, do not be afraid. Don't be dismayed. Don't be discouraged. Take all the fighting men with you. And arise, go to Ai. See, I have given into your hand the king of Ai and his people, his city and his land. Verse 2. And you shall do to Ai and his king as you did to Jericho and its king. Only its spoil and its livestock you shall take as plunder for yourselves. So lay an ambush against the city behind it. So Joshua and all the fighting men, verse 3, arose to go up to Ai, and Joshua chose 30,000 mighty men of valor and sent them out by night. Notice real quick a a quick comparison contrast between the first battle of Ai in chapter 7 and the second battle of Ai in chapter 8. Notice some things that are different. God is giving the order. God is giving the command. God is telling them to move. Very absent from the first battle of Ai. First battle of Ai? You mean you read it, chapter 7, verses 2 to 5. Joshua sends the recon team out. The recon team comes back, gives the report. Joshua sends the 3,000 men out. Very absent from the first battle of Ai is, well, where is God at play in this? Where is prayer at play in this? Where is a self-examination in play here? Well, it's very different here. Very different indeed. And so, 
Here Joshua comes. And he comes initially with the whole army. And then they go from point A to point B and they get to point B and then he sends 30,000 to go and lay in ambush. We'll see later. It's actually to the west of the city. And so the plan is coming together. And verse 4, this thought is continued and he commanded them, Behold, you shall lie in an ambush against the city. Behind it. Do not go very far from the city, but all of you remain ready. And I and the people who are with me will approach the city. And when they come out against us, just as before, before meaning the first battle of Ai in chapter 7, we shall flee before them. Verse 6. And they will come out after us until we have drawn them away from the city. For they will say, they are fleeing from us just as before. So we will flee before them. Then, then you shall rise up from the ambush and seize the city. For the Lord your God will give it into your hand. And as soon as you have taken the city, you shall set the city on fire. You shall do according to the word of the Lord. See, I have commanded you. Nine. So Joshua sent them out. And they went to the place of ambush and lay between Bethel and Ai to the west of Ai. But Joshua spent that night among the people. The plan requires some different moving pieces. Here is Ai, okay? Joshua is going to advance with the main party from the north and the ambush is behind the city. Technically it's to the west of the city. You got never heat, shredded wheat, so northeast, southwest. So Joshua's going to come from there. He's going to advance. Right here, I would represent Ai from your vantage point. You would be heading in the direction that Joshua would with the main contingency. And then here to the west, rather to the west, the ambush is going to be laid. The ambush is going to be laid there. They're going to be concealed. They're going to be near the city, but not too far away in order that they might be ready to spring the attack. And the goal is, the hope is, that the people of Ai will assume that this is going to go down just the way the first battle did. The Joshua will come, and they'll come out, and they'll think this is going to be easy peasy. We're going to smoke them. And as soon as they leave, the goal is to draw them out of the city and then the ambush to come. That's the goal. But once again, in this set of instructions, I think what's really important, notice the concern that is given to God. Notice the concern that's given to God. In the fact, all throughout here, even going back to the very beginning where he says in verse 1, I have given into your hand the king of Ai and his people and his city. Notice even in verse 7, for the Lord your God will give it into your hand. Notice in verse 8, where he gives this direction, you shall do according to the word of the Lord, just as I've commanded you. Already there's a huge contrast and comparison in chapter 7 and chapter 8 in the first battle and the second battle of Ai. And I think it raises, at least we have to raise the question, how important is it to have God involved in our lives? How, how important is it just by 
making an observation from the first battle of Ai where God is very absent from any instructions, from any commands, from any orders, from any consultation. And the second battle, which it's quite the opposite, I think the answer is to the question, how important is it that God be a part of our lives, involved in our lives? Pretty important. Pretty important. It seems, and I realize this word is not used in chapter 7, but it seems that there's almost this assumption. There's almost this assumption on the part of Joshua and the people. And I think the fact that there is an assumption is based upon how Joshua responds after the defeat in verses 6 to 9 of chapter 7. Joshua's shocked. This is not supposed to be how this was all going to unfold. They're riding a two-game win streak, right? They're up two games to O in the series. I mean, this is ready to get closed out. They went 1-0 and against the Jordan River. They went 2-0 and against Jericho. And now they're about to go 3-0 and against Ai, right? I think there's this assumption. This is just how it's going to be. Joshua sends the recon team out. They come in. They give the report. Based on the report, he sends the 3,000 men out, and they get beat, and they come back like a dog with his tail between his legs. And Joshua seems to have no idea what went wrong. And I think for that reason, there's an assumption that they thought they were just going to cruise to victory. It's done. And yet they're shocked. They're shocked. And and so here in the second battle of Ai, it goes very different. They don't move. They don't get up. They don't do anything until God gives the order, right? And I think it brings back the importance of this invitation, right, on the part of the people, inviting him to come in, right? There is this waiting for him. There is this understanding that we're not going, we're not doing anything unless God makes it clear to us. So we see this waiting at the end of chapter 7 after they kill Achan as God has ordered them to do. After that, they're not doing anything. And that's really kind of where the story picks up in chapter 8 where God's like, don't be afraid, don't be discouraged, and get up and go. Apart from that, it seems that we have no reason to believe that they, they have any reason or any motivation to move whatsoever. They're just there. They're just waiting. And there's, a, I think, a temptation that we don't like just sitting there. We don't just like waiting. I don't. And if you're anything like me, I want to drive forward to the next objective. There's wisdom sometimes in waiting. In waiting. And the risk that we run in not waiting for God to give direction and guidance is pride. It is pride. Like, I see very much in this story a lack of acknowledging God until the battle of Ai is over. It's not until the battle of Ai is over in chapter 7, verses 6 to 9, that Joshua realizes, oh man, God, what's going on? God, what happened? But you don't see any consulting of the Lord prior to the battle. You don't. But that's usually how it goes in our lives, too. We, we consult God when we need to. We consult Him after 
things have blown up, after our world is turned upside down. And that's a good thing. But it makes you wonder, what would have happened had I consulted him prior to this giant mess that I'm now dealing with? What would have happened had Joshua, before he sent his 3,000 men out, after the recon team came back, and recon teams are good, Recon teams are good. Nothing wrong. The problem is not that Joshua sent the recon team and the recon team comes back in chapter 7. But I wonder what might have happened had Joshua said, Lord, what do you want us to do? Do you want us to attack? Do you want us to move forward? Do you want us to sit still? Do you want us to wait? God, what do we need to do? Should we maybe consecrate ourselves right now? Should we maybe examine our own selves right now? Are there things that we need to deal with? Are there sins going on in our lives that we need to kill, that we need to repent of? Lord, I don't want to move on AI prematurely. This is the report that I've been given. What am I to do with it? I wonder how things might have played out differently had that conversation taken place. But the acknowledging of God comes in chapter 7, 6 to 9, it comes, of course, after the battle of Ai is over. And once again, that usually is how it happens in our lives, too. It's after the fact that we ask God, after we've gotten ourselves into a little bit of a predicament, that we go to him. And I think this is very reflective in James, Jesus' little brother, when he says, Come, come now, chapter 4, 13 of James, come now, you who say tomorrow, or today, today or tomorrow, we'll go into such and such a town and spend a year there and trade and make a profit, or we'll go tomorrow and battle at AI, or tomorrow we'll go and we'll move to this country, or we'll take this job, or we'll move to this city, or we'll start dating that person. You do not know what tomorrow will bring. You don't. You don't know what's going to happen tomorrow. What is your life? I'll tell you what your life is. It's a mist that appears for a little time and then it vanishes. Instead, you ought to say, if the Lord wills, we will live and do this or that. If the Lord wills, we will go and battle the people at Ai. If the Lord wills, I will pack up everything and move across oceans. If the Lord wills, I will marry that person. If the Lord wills, I will take that job. If the Lord wills, I will turn down that job. If the Lord wills. As it is, you boast in your arrogance. All such boasting is evil. It raises that question, how important it is, how important is it to have God involved in our lives when you just compare and contrast chapter 7, chapter 8, the battle, first battle of Ai and the second battle of Ai. Have you not heard that it was said, trust in the Lord with all your heart and do not lean on your own understanding? In all your ways, acknowledge him and he shall make straight your paths. Why? Because that makes much of him. See, when you trust and you lean upon your own understanding exclusively, and I'll use that word exclusively because there's certainly wisdom in sending out, as Joshua did in chapter 7, a reconnaissance team, but when you lean exclusively on your own proudness, on your own military might, on your own ingenuity, you don't make much of God, you make much of yourself. Joshua, what an amazing military strategy that you imposed. 
What a great reconnaissance team. No, no, in saying this, in saying these things, there is a humility, birthing, pride-killing, God-exalting understanding that we need to see and behold. And they seem to be beholding it now, though it sometimes ends up being very costly lessons for us. Very costly lessons in chapter 7 in the story of Achan. We'll push forward. Here's what he says in verse 10. Joshua arose early in the morning and mustered the people and went up, he and the elders of Israel before the people of Ai, And all the fighting men who were with him went up and drew near before the city and encamped on the north side of Ai with a ravine between them and Ai. Verse 12, he took about 5,000 men and set them in ambush between Bethel and Ai to the west of the city. So once again, understand, I get turned around with geography. So Joshua's coming from the north. Okay, the ambush is here. I think at one point in the sermon I said it was over here. It's not over there. Here's the west, okay? So here's Joshua, okay? If I'm Joshua and you're the people, we're, we're, here we are. We're kind of on this hill. We can see AI over there. There's this ravine. So the terrain's naturally going to drop down. And then here's AI. AI would be kind of maybe right here. That way we can use the ledge kind of as the elevation um, contour lines. And then to the west, that's the ambush. This is where the ambush is. It says the rear of the city. It's technically to the west of the city. And that's how this is set up. Now, verse 12 is interesting because it says, he took about 5,000 men and set them in ambush between Bethel and Ai to the west of the city. That's interesting because it raises the question, is something new being stated here? Or is this a flashback to something that's already been stated? Verse 12 is interesting because when you read verse 3 and 4 and verse 9, it seems to be reiterating some of the same exact information. The 30,000 men from verses 3, 4, and 9 are set up to the west of the city laying in ambush. So how do we understand verse 12? Is it new information or is it reiterating old information? Well, I'll show you, I think, both positions and then why one of them might be better than the other. If we take the understanding that verse 12 is simply introducing, or simply introducing new information, then at, for some reason Joshua realizes, okay, we've got 30,000 men over there to the west of the city, 30,000 men laying in ambush according to verses 3 and 4. Well, maybe we need to add an additional 5,000 men. Okay, we could read that just as that says. So verse 12 would be new information, and we're adding we're additional 5,000 men. Now the challenge of an ambush, and... You guys know I'm not an infantryman. I'm an army chaplain, but I, I've been around infantry guys enough and through my time as a cadet for four years, I know some basic infantry tactics and I've actually conducted ambushes in training settings but on a squad level with like 12 guys. Not with five, thirty, five thousand, not with this many people. That's, that's a logistical nightmare to conduct an ambush like that. Because the thing with an ambush, if AI is here and there is an ambush here to the west, the instructions per verses 3 and 4 is that they have to get close enough in order to be ready. 
which in order to be ready, they're going to have to have eyes on the objective. They're going to have to be able to physically see AI. So this is their vantage point of AI. And of course, Joshua will be coming from the north. So they've got to be able to see AI and they need to be able to see Joshua in order to see the signal. So they've got to get pretty close to the city. But of course, the thing is, if they can see AI, that means they're close enough that the people of AI can see them. So they're going to need concealment. They're going to need trees, bushes, rocks to conceal themselves from the enemy. I told you I've conducted in training a squad ambush with like 12 guys. We're dealing with thousands of men. So the question is, is how hard would that be to conceal, say, 35,000 men? And the answer, pretty hard. I don't know how many people were at commencement. Does anyone know? Yes, a lot is what the person in the back said. It was JJ. A lot. I think there was, let's say there was 30,000 people. Imagine concealing that many people. Okay? And it's easy maybe to conceal 30,000 people if you're 15 miles away or 10 miles away or 5 miles away. But they don't have that luxury, i.e. that's why it's called an ambush. They've got to be right on top of the kill zone, you might say. So this is where the second option comes in that suggests that verse 12 is not giving any new information. This is not an additional 5,000 men being added to the already 30,000 men in the ambush, but rather verse 12 is simply reiterating the same information in verse 9. Well, the challenge to that is verse 9 is describing the 30,000 men in the ambush. So then which number do you select? If verse 12 is restating the information from verse 9 and verse 3, if that's referring to the exact same ambush, which the details look very similar, setting them in the ambush between Bethel and Ai to the west of the city. It seems like all but for the actual number 5,000 that's referring to the exact same ambush, and the challenge is there is the actual numbers. And this is where I am going to take the same position. I was convinced of this. If you're not, that's okay. That the New American Commentary takes that verse 12 is referring to the same ambush conducted in verse 3. And that this is what they would say, and I quote, is an early copyist error that had erroneously changed 5,000 in verse 3 to 30,000. So, practically speaking, this works well. Because conducting an ambush with 35,000 people would be, I think, very, very difficult. 5,000 is much more manageable. But you can see the battle plans regardless of the number. You can see it unfolding. So here's what happens next. Verse 13. So they encamped, excuse me, so they stationed the forces. The main encampment, well, that was north of the city. And it's rear guard west of the city. But Joshua spent the night in the valley. And as soon as the king of Ai saw this, he and all his people, the men of the city, hurried and went out early to the appointed place toward the Arba to meet Israel in battle. But he did not know that there was an ambush against him behind the city. He didn't know because he couldn't see it. Verse 15, And Joshua and all Israel pretended to be beaten before them and fled in the direction of the wilderness. Verse 16, So all the people who were in the city were called together to pursue them. And as they pursued Joshua, they were drawn away from the city. Not a man was left in Ai or Bethel who did not go out after Israel. They left the city open and pursued Israel.
this works out really well for Israel. What is perhaps slightly puzzling here is the reference to Bethel. I don't know if you caught that. This is the second battle of Ai, and yet the people of Bethel are going out in verse 17 to fight alongside, apparently, with the people of Ai. And while it is puzzling because no record of Bethel's defeat is found, we do understand that in chapter 12, verse 16 of Joshua, the record of the king of Bethel is listed as those defeated. And one of the reasons that might be the case is because the people and the readers of the book of Joshua understood that, well, Bethel, that was defeated too, and they didn't need to make any other further reference. So, here it is. The king of Ai sees Joshua coming from the north. He opens his doors, and they pursue. They pursue. Joshua? Joshua? begins to pull back, they feign defeat, and goes into the wilderness. People of AI think this is going to be just like the first battle. They pursue hardcore. Now, it doesn't take much more than a freshman ROTC cadet to realize this is a poor decision on the king of AI. Like, if it seems too good to be true, the, the old adage is it probably is. You're just going to totally disregard your left, your right flanks, and pursue the enemy because they appear to be defeated. It doesn't raise any type of contingency question such as, what if there's a trap or an ambush? Like, I'm being for real. Like, this is terrible strategy, terrible planning on the part of the king of AI. The fact that he would do this is so ignorant and foolish. And I wasn't kidding when I said it. a freshman ROTC cadet in college could say, yeah, that's probably a bad plan. Some of you might realize that. So why? So why? It takes you back to Joshua chapter 2, Rahab's statement. She says, oh, we've heard the stories of your God and our hearts have melted. Of course, Rahab's declaration with the Lord your God and she uses God's personal name, Yahweh, the Lord your God, back in chapter 2, the Lord your God, He is God in the heavens above and in the earth below. But she tells the spies in chapter 2 that other people have heard these stories. She gives them good intelligence. She says people's hearts are very discouraged because of what they know. In fact, after they cross the River Jordan in chapter 5, verse 1, we hear one of the effects of God doing the miracle and crossing the Jordan is many of the Canaanite kings, their hearts melted. And why am I telling you this? I'm telling you this because that was the end of it. Their hearts were discouraged. Their hearts melted. They knew that they were wrong. But unlike Rahab, they were unwilling to bow the knee. Unlike Rahab, they weren't willing to submit to Israel's God, the only true God. They, they didn't want to. Much like many people that we know today, people who are not followers of God, it's not like they don't know. It's not like they haven't heard the stories. They just refuse to. It's not that Rahab had some special information. These people's hearts are hardened in the same way that many of our family members and friends, their hearts are hardened toward God. Uh, they've maybe heard the gospel proclaimed and they say, no. And why am I saying that? I'm saying that 
Because to answer the question, why would the king of AI abandon AI? I mean, if you've played the board game Risk, you know defense wins. Defense automatically gets an advantage. You're behind the walls? Stay behind the walls. You have the elevation in the terrain? Use it to your advantage. Make the enemy come up the hill towards you and exhaust himself before he even begins to fight. So why would the king of Ai do this? For all the same reasons already mentioned. Because he was prideful and arrogant. It doesn't say that, but it is very much, I think, assumed to do something as stupid as this and lead the city because he thought they were just going to wipe the floor just as they had in the first battle. This was a done deal. And it is, I would argue, that same pride and that same arrogance that is in the lives of every unbeliever who hears the gospel preached and says, no way, not interested. That's the issue at stake. And that's seemingly the answer here for why the king of Ai would choose such a foolish, foolish decision. Verse 18 continues the story. It says, Then the Lord said to Joshua, Stretch out the javelin that is in your hand toward Ai, for I will give it into your hand. And Joshua stretched out the javelin that was in his hand toward this city. There's a play on words here, but don't miss the significance. Stretch out the javelin that is in your hand toward Ai, and I will give it being AI into your hand. I'm going to do it. I'm going to make it happen. Don't miss that principle there. So Joshua does this. Then 19, and the men in the ambush rose quickly, apparently in stretching out his hand. It was also a signal, it looks like, to those lying in ambush. So as soon as he does that, they get up. And the men in the ambush, verse 19, they rose quickly out of their place, and as soon as he had stretched out his hand, they ran and entered the city and captured it. And they hurried to set the city on fire, verse 20. And when the men of Ai looked back, behold, the smoke of the city went up to heaven, and they had no power to flee this way or that. For the people who fled to the wilderness, that is Joshua's people, now they've turned back against the pursuers. Against the Aites, verse 21. And when Joshua and all Israel saw that the ambush had captured the city and that the smoke of the city went up, then they turned back and struck down the men of Ai. And the others came out from the city against them. So they were in the midst of Israel, some on this side and some on that side. And Israel struck them down until there was left none that survived or escaped but the king of Ai. They took alive and brought him near Joshua. It's too late. King of Ai in his pride and his arrogance pursues the Israelite army in the open, leaving the city unprotected. And as soon as it was the right time, God tells Joshua, raise your javelin toward the city of Ai. I'm giving it into your hand. Of course, it seems to be also a signal to the people in the ambush. They get up, they go in the city, and at this point, it's over. There is no recourse. They are outflanked in front of them. They are outflanked to their rear, and then they are just crushed by the Israelites. There is no escape. And they all are cut down. Now there is an important principle because more than just being a signal, more than just being a signal for the ambush to begin by raising his hand that holds the javelin toward the city, the principle beyond this is, I think, the sovereignty of God at play and active throughout this story. Because this story emphasizes 
very much so, military strategy, military aspects, but make no mistake who is ordaining this to happen. Because that's a really important principle to remember. Because we don't serve a passive God who respects the will of his creature to such an extent that he forbids himself out of respect, no doubt, from being involved in willing and ordaining who will live and who will die. I've heard people say, God is such a gentleman that he would not force himself upon any man's will. Notice what is very much absent from this story. Well, Joshua, good luck. I'll try to set you up as best I can. I hope you guys are trained and ready to go because, listen, I'm, I'm not going to get you know, too caught up on the details here. I hope it works out well for you. But I, you know, I'm too much of a gentleman that I would impose my own will upon the will here today on the battlefield. I wouldn't do that. I've heard people say that. That seems to be very absent from this story, from this text. Who will live and who will die today at AI has been willed and ordained by God. It has been willed and ordained to God. The Israelites, the Israelites are going to win. And it has nothing to do about Israelite exceptionalism. It has nothing to do about making Israel great again. And, and that this, this is an important, crucial key to their victory. The crucial key is not Israel exceptionalism. You think about America. The key in America's success has nothing to do with American exceptionalism or making America great again. It doesn't. If America falls, America rises because God has willed and ordained it to take place. Just as God has willed and ordained for this battle to take place and to give the king of Ai into the hand of Joshua and the people. There is one reason that this plan goes off flawlessly and perfectly, and that's because God has ordained and willed it to be. He wills who will live. He wills who will die. As we've already discussed in in past episodes and events, God is thus doing here what only God can do. And they know this. They know this because they tried it their way in the first battle of Ai, and we all know how that went. Which again shows the importance of trusting God, of leaning on God, of consulting God, of obeying God. And in saying this, there is this humility-birthing, pride-killing, God-exalting understanding that we just need to see and behold. Now there's one reason, and one reason alone, that Israel will be victorious in this battle, and that's because God has ordained it to be. God, in verse 18, he says, you stretch out your javelin and your hand toward them, because I'm going to give them into your hand. Not your own great military strategy that figured this out. That's not what this is about. Why? Because that doesn't make much of God. That makes much of you. And God is not about making much of you. God is about making much of himself. Now, he may use you to do that. But that's not the principle we're leaning on in verse 18 now. God is looking pretty fly right now, guys. Because he is awesome. So this ambush works perfectly. The people of Ai are trapped. They're cut off. They capture the king. And then verse 24, when Israel had finished killing all the inhabitants of Ai in the open wilderness where they pursued them, and all of them to the very last had fallen by the edge of the sword, 
All Israel returned to Ai and struck it down with the edge of the sword. And verse 25, And all who fell that day, both men and women, were 12,000. All the people of Ai. Verse 26, But Joshua did not draw back his hand with which he stretched out the javelin until he had devoted all the inhabitants of Ai to destruction. More on that in one moment. Verse 27, Only the livestock... And the spoil of that city Israel took as their plunder according to the word of the Lord that he commanded Joshua. I mean, this is very reminiscent of Joshua 1, right? He commanded Joshua, verse 27. Joshua 1, Joshua, be careful to obey all the things that Moses commanded you to do, not deviating to the left or the right. That's so important. Verse 28, so Joshua burned Ai and made it forever a heap of ruins as it is to this day. And he hanged the king of Ai on a tree until evening. And at sunset, Joshua commanded, and they took his body down from the tree, and they threw it at the entrance of the gate of the city and raised over it a great heap of stones which stands there to this day. Notice in verse 26, Joshua did not draw back his hand with which he stretched out the javelin until he devoted all the inhabitants of Ai to destruction. Notice verse 26. Once again, this really reveals and shows that this is much more than just a signal to begin the ambush. Like, and if this verse reminds you at all of another passage of Scripture, it should. The passage in Exodus chapter 17, 8 to 16 they're going out, they're battling the Amalekites. Except this time, Joshua's a much younger man. Moses sends him out. He's the field commander. He's on the field engaging the enemy in hand-to-hand combat. And there is Moses. And he, as long as he holds up the rod of God, the Israelites are going to prevail against the Amalekites. But when his arm gets tired and his arm comes down from holding the rod of God, the Amalekites, they begin to prevail. And so there's Aaron and her, and they're holding up his arm and they're putting rocks under his arm. And then they're holding it up And here we see in verse 26, apparently Joshua kept the javelin in the air the entire time during the battle. He did not lower his arm until the battle was over. And I think that's because this verse is designed to make us think of the other passage to show another way in which we see Joshua as the new Moses and the worthy successor to Moses. In the end, in the end, however, AI pays dearly for its resistance. AI will pay dearly here in the end for its pride and for its refusal to submit to God as will every person who persists in rebellion against the great king. It's a story that reminds us of the sovereign rule of God over all things and brings us back to the humble beginnings by waiting, by trusting, by leaning on God, not ourselves or our own ingenuity as is painted through the battle both before and after. This is a story that encourages us in the aftermath of disappointments and setbacks in chapter 7. Like this story serves as a reminder to us, guys, of the holiness of God, the importance of obedience. Obedience that once again is echoed back in chapter 1. Joshua, be strong and courageous. And in doing so, be careful to obey all the things that God has commanded you. 
to obey all the things that Moses has instructed you. If you will be but strong and courageous to do this. See, think about this. Achan is one of the people of God. And so we might tend to make the claim or the excuse during Achan's sin and rebellion that really comes at the backdrop of this story today that, oh, well, Achan, you know, he's one of the people of God. Or, I'm, I'm a Christian, so there's grace. Achan's one of the covenant people of God, so there's grace, there's mercy, but there's, there's also justice. And this is a story that reminds us that God is not a respecter of persons as both Achan and the king of Ai meet the same fate. They meet the same fate in a great heap of stones which stands there to this day over their remains. He is a holy God. We're called to obey him. We're called to be strong and courageous just as Joshua, to follow everything that he has ordered us to follow. To lean on him and not our own understanding. So, as the band comes, you guys can come up. I'd like to just take a second and pray for us. We love you, Lord. We love you because you first loved us. And I thank you for the story of Joshua chapter 8, a a redemption story, especially in lieu of how everything went terrible in chapter 7 at the first battle of Ai. I thank you for redemption. I thank you that you are a father who loves us, and even though oftentimes we receive punishment and discipline, that you are there afterwards, as you were to Joshua, to encourage him not to fear, not to be discouraged. God, help us to lean upon you and not exclusively our own ingenuity or understanding of the situation. Lord, help us. Help us, God, to remember how important it is to have you a part of, included in, dialed up to every aspect of our lives, whether it's the battlefields of AI or just decisions in our own life. Protect us from pride, arrogance like the king of AI, just trying to muscle it through with American grit, God, that doesn't make much of you. That makes much of us. I pray that you would receive all glory and honor from our lives. That we might say, as James tells us, if you will, we'll go that way or this way. If you will, we'll do this or that. Help us, Jesus, because this is hard sometimes. In your name we pray, amen. Guys, um, we're going to take communion. And communion's for Christians. Communion's for Christians. You don't have to be a member here to take communion, but communion is for Christians. And I would caution you, as Paul does in 1 Corinthians chapter 11, 
Some of the people in Corinth were taking communion in an unworthy manner, and as a result, God killed some of them. That's how serious this is. So I would invite you, when, when you guys are ready, to come in the back, to take the juice, to take the bread. But, but when you're ready, there's not a rush, not going anywhere. If you need to sit here, if you need to have a conversation with the Lord, that's fine. But when you're ready, and as I said, communion's for Christians. If you're not a Christian, I'd say abstain from that. But if you've placed your faith in Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior of your life and repented and turned from your sins, then I'd invite you to come. But when you're ready, when you're ready.